In his 1969 lectures on preaching, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones reasoned, without any hesitation, the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the great and most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the great need also of the world. Well, 53 years later, that urgent need is still ever the great necessity of our day. One theologian laments, this postmodern world has lost its respect for preaching. Once regarded as the center of Christian worship, preaching is now seen by so many as something that is supplemental instead of instrumental. Another theologian observes, this is nowhere more clearly evident than in the way the Bible is preached by many evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians. Texts are taken out of context, and applications are made without due concern for what the Bible author, which is ultimately the Holy Spirit, is seeking to convey by the text. Problem-centered and topical preaching became the norm, and the character studies that treat heroes and heroines of the Bible as isolated examples of how to live. However one may discern the state of preaching in our day, to add to that the difficulty, Dr. Jason K. Allen of Midwestern Seminary correctly assesses that our culture finds itself at the intersection of geopolitical tumult abroad, encroaching secularism at home, and a general sense of the decay of Christian civilization. Recent news and research headlines such as, in U.S., decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace, and one in three practicing Christians has stopped attending church during COVID-19, as well as the myriad of divisive political, sexual abuse, racial, and pandemic-related disagreements have brought about a reckoning to our churches and to our denomination, which all proves Lloyd-Jones' evaluation to be still very much true and relevant as ever. Concerned Christians ought to heed Pastor John MacArthur's words. One of the clearest lessons we learn from church history is that strong biblical preaching is absolutely vital to the health and vitality of the church. So he asks, how could any issue be more important? Similarly, Dr. Albert Muller of Southern Seminary exhorts, preaching is always a matter of life and death. The people in our churches depend for their very lives on the ministry of the word. Therefore, our preaching had better be nothing less and nothing other than the exposition of the Bible, nothing else will do. Hence the question for us this afternoon, why are teaching and preaching of God's Word central, central to the life of the local church? We're picking back up our series, Rediscovered Church, guided by the book of the same title by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman. So we're studying through each chapter of the book in our three-part topical sermon series to consider what and who the Bible says the church is. Today, we'll be starting part two of our series, chapters four, five, and six, and we'll pick up part three sometime next spring. Now, in my introduction, you just heard me give a whole spiel about the importance of preaching, specifically expository preaching, expository preaching, which can be defined preaching in which the main point of the passage becomes the main point of the sermon being preached. But ironically, today, I'll be preaching a topical message in this topical series on the topic of preaching and teaching. I know, I know, Pastor Jeremy last Sunday said here at New Covenant Baptist Church, we unashamedly prioritize expository preaching above any other form of preaching. 
And he said, we take great care to expose God's word to God's people, nothing more, nothing less. Well, here I am today, not preaching expositionally, but topically. And I belabor this point intentionally because we want you to know this is not and should not be the norm in Bible-believing churches. Anything other than expositional preaching will be a rarity here at New Covenant Baptist because we want to be a word-centered, gospel-centered, Christ-centered church. Amen? But the reason for this series is because Pastor Jeremy and I thought for a young church like ours, it would be important for us to devote these series of messages to teach and emphasize the significance of what and who the Bible says a church is. As you may know or may not know, so many churches in this area, so many Christian churches in our county and our country have plateaued or are dead or dying, have strayed from orthodoxy because they have lost the gospel. They have failed to preach the faithful word of God week in and week out. Or there are so many churches which are centered around pragmatism or program-driven ministry, meet the needs of the people. Now again, not that all of that is necessarily all bad, but when a church brews nominalism, you could just come and go as you please. And a church encourages expressive self-individualism along with the culture. When God's church is centered around me and what I can get out of it and consumerism, when there is no true preaching that holds Christians accountable to their faith, when church becomes non-essential, that's a problem. We believe that the primary mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations and to do that through the preaching of God's Word and through the Word lived out in the lives of the members of this church for God's glory until Jesus returns for the advancement of His kingdom. Amen? So we pray these series of messages will edify you and challenge you in committing to, in uniting with, in serving and growing with this local church body, not only because you feel like it's a good thing to do, not only because you like this church and some of the people of this church, but because that is what the Bible says a Christian is. We are who we are. We are what we are. We do what we do because the Bible says so. And we pray particularly that through this message, you will come to a greater appreciation of God's word rightly and faithfully preached in this pulpit. I pray that through this topical message, you will hunger all the more to hear the word of God exposited week in and week out. So again, in answering the question, why are teaching and preaching central in the local church? I want to address four broad categories regarding the centrality of God's word. Here's the outline so you know what's ahead. Point number one, the primacy of God's word. The primacy of God's word. Point number two, the preacher of God's word. The preacher of God's word. Point number three, the power of God's word. The power of God's word. And point number four, the promise. The promise of God's word. Primacy, preacher, power, and promise. So let's jump right into it. Why is teaching and preaching central to a local church? Let's consider point number one, the primacy of God's word. In this point, I want to talk about two things regarding the primacy or the first or the most importance of God's word. So two subpoints: authority and priority. Authority and priority. Let's first talk about authority. What gives the preacher the right to stand up before a crowd of people commanding 
your undivided attention for at least 35 minutes. Okay, who am I kidding? 45 to 50 minutes every Sunday and claim to speak on God's behalf. Who gives me, preachers, the right? We know that not even president, the president of the United States, boasts such authority. No math teacher or literary professor is granted such privilege. Not even professional speakers who get paid thousands of dollars for speaking once rarely have the opportunity to speak before an audience every week for years, for decades, as a preacher does. One-directional monologues is not a common practice in our society. Yet for over 2,000 years in Christian history, preaching of God's word have been the central practice of God's people under the new covenant. When we gather together every Sunday since Jesus rose up from the grave. Well, where does this idea and practice come from? Where does this authority come from? It comes directly from Scripture. The authority is drawn from God's word alone. It is God's idea and not man's. And that's because from the introductory pages of the Holy Scriptures, we are introduced to a God who speaks. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in between by how? By speaking. In Genesis chapter 2, God forms man of dust from the ground by the breath of his mouth. And there is no clearer picture of our speaking God than in Isaiah chapter 44. If you have your Bibles, please turn it there briefly. Isaiah chapter 44. This is an instance when God himself sets himself apart from all other idols, all other so-called gods by the fact that he alone speaks. Isaiah Chapter 44, verses 6 through 8 says this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what it is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Haven't I told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Basically, what is God saying through the prophet Isaiah? He's saying there is no other God besides me. I am the God of Israel. I am Yahweh. And so God demands and challenges all other idols and so-called gods that human beings were worshiping. And God was challenging them, if they are real, tell us, speak, say something. Yet as we see in 1 Kings 18, but there was no voice, no one answered. Never elsewhere in history is there a God who has ever spoken as much as uttered a single word, nor ever recorded. Only our God, only Yahweh, only the God of this Bible. Amen? This book contains the very words of God. It is the best-selling book of all times every year, at least by double. There is no competition, not even close. And that is no small thing, you see. Hence the fact that our speaking God wants to communicate to his people at all times in the most accurate, consistent way was to reveal himself, not only through general revelation, through the grandeur, the beauty, the power, the intricacy, the order in creation, and also through special revelation, through his written word, 
But remember, when we studied Psalm 19, what it taught us? God is speaking so clearly through creation and through His Word. Because why? He had a purpose. He had a purpose. And what is that purpose? To show sinful human beings who are so deceived and lost and confused about our sins. To show us of our need of a Savior. And so not only does God's Word have divine authority, God's Word teaches us of His priority to speak not just the fact of it, but that God desires to speak to you and to me about who He is and who we are in light of Him. So even as early as in Deuteronomy, God reveals Himself to His people after rescuing them from slavery, from Egypt. And what does God do? He gives them the law. He speaks to His people and tells them who He is and who therefore they are to be. So in Deuteronomy 32, verses 46 through 47, here Moses instructs God's people to, uh, verses 46, 47, it says this, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word to you, but your very life. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, during Israel's return from exile, when all the people gathered to hear the law, the prophet Ezra and all the Levites, the priests, traveled among the people. And what do they do? They explain the law to the people. Nehemiah 8.8, 8, which says this, They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that they, the people, understood what was being read. In Jeremiah 14, 14, God condemns false prophets. For what? For speaking their own thoughts and visions instead of the word of God. Jeremiah 14, 14, which says, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. And all of this to explain what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times, and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Well, who is this Son by whom God speaks? He is none other than Jesus Christ, in which John chapter 1, verses 1-2 through 2 explains, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. And in verse 14, the famous verse, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Simply, all of Scripture was pointing to the revealing of God's full and final and perfect Word, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of God's Word, and how in Him we know the way, the truth, and the life. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In another instance, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, These are the very scriptures that they testify about me. So brothers and sisters, if you want to know God, if you want to hear God, if you want to see God, look to Jesus, see His life, 
hear and obey Him, hope and trust in Him. As you study the Bible, the Old and the New Testaments both, you will see that every passage of Scripture points to Jesus Christ and the redemption we have in Him, our Savior, Messiah. As Colossians chapter 2, verse 17 says, these, referring to the Old Testament laws, are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the real thing, belongs to Christ. So what does that mean? Jesus is the center of the grand redemptive plan of God. Jesus is the center of human history. Literally, B.C. and A.D., Jesus is at the center. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the chief cornerstone of our faith. And Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. And so we see why, as Lloyd-Jones again says, the primary task of the church and of the Christian minister is the preaching of the Word of God. Furthermore, this God-given priority of preaching then helps us to understand the significant symbolism at work in preaching. There is a powerful symbolic meaning to why there is a man standing here every Sunday, and there is a crowd of people listening to the Word of God. As Pastor Greg Gilbert says, anytime God speaks in love to human beings, it is an act of grace. We do not deserve it, and we contribute nothing to it. The act of preaching is a powerful symbol of that reality. You see, the very act of preaching reveals the theology of God. It reveals who God is and who we are. He is everything. We are nothing. He speaks, we listen. He is the master, we are his subjects. He is the omnipotent, eternal, good and gracious God. We are the recipients of his grace and mercy through his word. Hence to speak his word, rightly, accurately, regularly is our priority. The purpose of our gathering is centered on his word, to sing God's word, to read God's word, to pray God's word, to preach and hear God's word, and to see God's word through baptism and Lord's Supper. Lloyd-Jones again says, Jesus did not come into the world to heal the sick and the lame and the blind or to quell storms on the sea. He could do such things and did so frequently, but these are all secondary. They are not primary. Well, what is the primary according to Jesus? Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 1 verse 38, let us go somewhere else to towns nearby so that I may preach there also for that is what I came to do. In Luke 4 43, Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for I was sent for this purpose. And we see how the apostles carried out their primary priority of the word in Acts 6 in the foundation of the early church. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and 7. When a conflict arose within the church as the church increased, the apostles responded by saying, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And it says the word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. And that is why centuries later, brothers and sisters, when the gospel was recovered from the religious corruption of Roman Catholicism in the 1500s, the reformers established that the two marks of a true church, in other words, for a church 
to be truly a Christian church, not just a gathering of Christians, but for a church to be a true church, true biblical church, two things are essential. The right preaching of the word and the right administration of the ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. Colin Hansen says, we get up and gather with the church weekly because that's where we hear from the divine king, his good news and his counsel for our lives. We hear from him every time we open our Bibles, yes, but we hear from him together in the weekly gathering. We're shaped together as a people there. This is why preaching and teaching are central to our church gatherings. Centering our gatherings around God's word cultivates the heavenly culture that should characterize us as a distinct people so that we can in turn be salt and light in our cities and our nations. Hence, brothers and sisters, I pray that you would see the primacy of God's word in the local church is imperative. I pray that you yourself would grow in your love for God's word. I pray that by your daily reading and studying of it and weekly hearing of it, you would grow deeper in knowledge, in trust, in hope of his word. I pray that in your sharing of it, that you would grow more confident of his sovereign salvation and that you would grow in appreciation of your own gift of salvation granted freely to you by Christ's substitute life and death for you. Amen? Let's move on. Why is preaching and teaching central to the local church? Let's consider point number two, the preacher of God's word, the preacher of God's word. There's much to be said about the preacher in which the preaching of God's word comes through, but I just want to highlight two things that are most important, which will serve as subpoints. Two things, Apostle Paul exhorts young Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, the preacher's life and the preacher's doctrine. Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What a sobering reminder, even on this very week, evangelicalism heard the unfortunate news of another very well-known pastor fall from grace, at least having to step down from his pastorate this very week because of a failure of moral integrity. Now, I don't know much about the details of this story at all. I didn't spend time too much time reading about it. But all we know is that his frequent conversations online with the sister who wasn't his wife was enough to disqualify him temporarily from his office as a pastor. Now, I know some people are commending him for his humility and transparency and honesty by his confession, but friends, members of New Covenant Baptist Church, a pastor flirting with someone, not his wife, repeatedly is a serious matter. Praise the Lord for a church that exercises biblical church discipline to even a very famous celebrity pastor, even at the potential cost of the vitality of that church, for the sake of gospel purity and for God's name to not be tarnished. Amen? Brothers and sisters, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7 outlines the qualifications of a pastor preacher. Let me read it for you from verse 2. If you have your Bibles, please turn and flip it to 1 Timothy 3, chapter, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. Uh, page 992 in your blue Bibles around you. Starting from verse 2, it says this, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, a husband of one wife or one woman man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 
He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with the conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Did you notice? One verse, one verse is dedicated to teaching, but the rest are about his character. Of course, this doesn't minimize the pastor's ability to teach and preach whatsoever. In fact, that's what sets apart the office of an elder from a deacon. There are other such verses as 1 Timothy 5.17, which says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. But the emphasis, but the emphasis is this, that the life and the character of a preacher is the foundation. It's the basis, it's the grounds on which he can dare to stand before others and preach, thus saith the Lord. That's why 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, especially for a pastor preacher. He who doesn't know how to handle his own life, his own mouth, his own tweets or posts or DMs, he who doesn't know how to manage his own family is not qualified to handle God's Word and to teach it to others. But even for those who are qualified, what a caution, what an exhortation, what a reminder for preachers to watch carefully his life and his doctrine and persevere in them. There's more I can say about the preacher's life, but if I may, even as the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, was not ashamed to ask his congregation regularly to pray for him. Whenever Spurgeon was asked about the secret of his ministry, Spurgeon always replied, What is the secret of your ministry? Spurgeon always replied, My people pray for me. And so, brothers and sisters, may I ask, as one of your pastors, to please pray for me regularly as I pray for you, members of New Covenant Baptist Church? Please pray for my life. Please pray for my holiness and purity. Please pray for me as a husband and a father and a student and a friend. Pray for me as a Christian neighbor. Pray for me throughout the week as I prepare my sermons, as I counsel members in the congregation. Please also pray for Pastor Jeremy. Please also pray for Brett as he serves us as a pastoral assistant. Pray for Jacob Holly as he is being considered as an elder. Pray that we would be vigilant and diligent to know, learn, love, share, and hope in God's word. And pray that we would persevere to the end. In terms of doctrine, Scripture warns in 1 Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Well, may it never be that any preacher of New Covenant Baptist Church do not preach a sound gospel. May it never be that anyone from this pulpit stand here at all to proclaim any words to itching ears. May it never be that any preacher from here not preach the hard truths of Scripture from the whole counsel of God, old and the new. May it be a rarity that a sermon of NCBC is not a direct exposition from the Bible. Well, that's the benefit of a congregational church like ours. If ever any of us do not preach the Word and the Gospel, you, the church, not the pastor, you, the church, has the authority to warn us, to even fire us, 
May it never be so. Perhaps you have heard of an old joke about a soldier who wrote home every day for a full year to his girlfriend. After receiving over 300 letters, she fell in love with the mailman. The point of the story is, preachers stand in the pulpit every Sunday with God's love letter. Our responsibility as the preacher is to deliver the letters so that the intended recipient can understand on a profound level the deep mystery of the Father's love for them. They are not supposed to fall in love with the mailman, you see. Preachers must never use the Word of God in an insecure attempt to garner personal affection for ourselves. As Pastor Mark Dever says, the preacher's work is the task of a mail carrier. The mail carrier doesn't walk up to your door, open the mail, jot down a few extra notes, reseal the envelope, and then place the letter in your mailbox. The mail carrier simply delivers the mail. The preacher has the authority to deliver the mail, nothing else. As Hansen again says, the sermon is not the place for human reflection, but divine power. He continues, the best preachers don't make you marvel at their own skill. They show you God's glory as seen in his word. And when you see God that way, you want as much of him as you can get. You grow in eagerness to read and apply the word for yourself. Then you enter a virtuous feedback loop. The more the preachers help you know and love the word, the more you develop that taste for yourself and better taste you develop for meaty preaching. And if I can have the better taste you develop in sharing and teaching others God's word in discipleship and evangelism. So I hope what you are getting each Sunday here from me and other preachers is more and more of God's Word and very little of James Choi or Jeremy Leong or Jacob Hawley or Philip Reynolds or Brett Lewis. Not our oratory skills, not our rhetorical power, not our wisdom at all, not funny stories or interesting illustrations. But I pray, pray with me that what you will get, what you will hear is God's Word, God's wisdom, God's way. And can I say, I just want to confess to you and thank you for putting up with me and encouraging me with your prayers and support every week as I preach God's word to you. I can say even after preaching 17 years of pastoring, weekly preaching is the hardest thing that I have to do every week. It is also one of the most rewarding things. Again, I love it, but let me just confess it to you that it is hard. Thank you for bearing with me as I grow as a preacher and pastor. Thank you so much for your prayers. Uh, that's the beauty of the local church, isn't it? Preaching is not simply the work of the preacher alone. A preacher is not a simply a talking head. A preacher on podcast or online service is not your pastor, your shepherd. He doesn't even know who you are. Your preacher is the one who is committed to you, one who prepares his message in prayer for you, to equip you and to remind you weekly of him. And you are committed to him as you pray for him, as you encourage him, as you submit to him, as you submit to Christ. You are not mere spectators sitting here today or any Sunday. You are actually participants. You are contributors. When you smile and say amen, I get all revved up and excited and want to preach better. Amen? One doesn't exist without the other. It is a relationship. I preach, you listen, praise the Lord. The church is built up. Jesus is glorified. We are committed to one another's growth and obedience of God's word. You and I together are the display of God at work. The church is God's gospel made visible, a testimony, a witness of God's love through one another. Amen? 
Lloyd-Jones sums it up well in his very famous book, Preaching and Preachers, on his chapter on the preacher. He says, what is the chief thing? What matters above all the mechanics of preaching, which are but a bare minimum? The chief thing is the preacher's love for God. The preacher's love for souls. A knowledge of truth and the Holy Spirit within him. These are the things that make the preacher. Colin Hansen says it another way. So as you rediscover church, look for preachers who love you enough that they know how to both cut and stitch you up as necessary like a good surgeon. Look for ones who know they derive their authority from the king of kings, whose good news and counsel they proclaim. They don't just want a slice of your paycheck. They aim to set an example for you and not merely impress you with their learning and charisma. Brothers and sisters, pray that preachers of NCBC will be as such Pray that many preachers will be raised up and sent out from among us. Amen? Let's consider the next point. These next two points are much shorter. In fact, they're more like one point in two halves. So here we go. Why are teaching and preaching central in the local church? Point number three, the power, the power of God's word. Over and over, scripture shows us that God's word has the power to heal, to restore, and to give life. Perhaps one of the most dramatic examples and visual illustrations of this is in Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. So if you turn to Ezekiel 37 real quick, verses 1 through 6, let me read it for you. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 6. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 6 says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. And set me down in the middle of the valley, it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and you will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this account is not merely a vision, but a prophecy of how God's word would give spiritual life to the spiritually dead through Jesus Christ, the word of God, by his death and resurrection. In fact, this is the testimony of so many who are here today. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. If that's you, say amen. Amen. This is our testimony. We were once dead, but now by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, we are alive. That's why in 1 Corinthians 9.16, the Apostle Paul says, I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Because in Romans 1.16, he also says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Brothers and sisters, we must preach the gospel. And woe to us, woe to us, if we do not preach the good news. What is this good news? What is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel is the best news you will ever hear. That God, who is holy, who is the creator of all things, created us in love for his glory and for our good. But man, you and I, having been tempted by Satan, disobeyed God's word 
and rebelled against God to our eternal demise. As a result, man was separated from God, helpless and incapable of saving ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. And we were set on a consequential and eventual death and judgment of the righteous God. No matter what good works, no matter what religiosity we try to merit for ourselves, to accrue for ourselves, the fact of the matter, Scripture says, is we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Scripture says, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. All of us has gone astray. But God. But God had a plan from before the foundation of the world to set apart a people for Himself who will proclaim the excellencies of Him, who will testify of His amazing, incredible, eternal love for sinful man to know that love. That was His plan. How? Through Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, truly God and truly man, the Word of God become flesh. By His sinless life, by His substitute death, Jesus took our place on the cross for our sins and paid the price for our sins, dying the death that we should have died, suffering the punishment that we would have suffered in hell. Jesus took upon Himself the wrath of God. In our place, He stood condemned. But on the third day, as you know, hallelujah, God raised Jesus from the dead just as it was written. Just as Jesus said over and over and over again, He would. Jesus defeated death, sin, Satan once and for all. And He ascended into heaven to the right hand of God. Jesus reigns as the sovereign King of the universe, as the preeminent Lord of all. And He invites all, all, everyone, anyone who would repent and trust and call on Him as Savior and Lord to new life on earth and eternal life with Him forevermore. As Scripture says, all who will call on the name of the Lord, all who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is there anyone here who does not yet know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Friends and visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. We have been praying for you. Every Christian in the history of humanity came to know God through exactly the same way. We were once blind. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were once enemies of God. We hated God. We didn't know God. But dear friend, God is a gracious, loving, and merciful God. He does not want you to remain deceived and dead. He calls you right now, this moment, into His marvelous light. This word is for you. It is the power of God unto salvation to deliver you from death to rescue you from your righteous punishment in eternal hell, to save you from your countless sins by your rejection of Him. So may today be the day you repent of your sins, which is an acknowledgement of who you are, a sinner in need of a Savior, by turning from yourself to Him. Repent today. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you and trust Him with your whole life. Trust Him. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in other people. Trust in Him alone with your whole life today and forevermore. If you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, I would love to talk to you at the close of service. I'll be standing at this door. Brandon Lee, our service leader, will be standing right here. And Brett Lewis, our new pastoral assistant, will be standing at the outside door. Please talk to us or talk to anyone who is smiling next to you. We would be happy to tell you more about how you can follow Jesus, the most glorious, wonderful, beautiful Savior and Lord. Brothers and sisters, may we never be ashamed of the gospel. Amen?
May we live our lives before others with the gospel front and center of how we live, how we speak, how we love one another in our homes, in our workplaces, in our classrooms, in our marriages, in our dating relationships, in our parenting, in our discipling relationships, in our evangelism. Brothers and sisters of NCBC, don't leave this place without considering how you can do this, how you can make the gospel front and center in your own lives. What can you do this very week in faith for God's glory? for the building up of his church to display and speak of Jesus' gospel. How can we lean on each other? Seriously, how can you lean on each other in humility, in transparency, in honesty, and accountability? Not trying to make yourself seem or, or, or look all put together, but seeking together in humility to build up one another. How can you do that this week? Consider that before you leave. Fourth and finally, very, very short point. Why are teaching and preaching central to the local church? Fourth and finally, the promise of God's word. Isaiah 40, verse 8, says this, The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Brothers and sisters, when the sufferings of life come knocking at your door, and it does, doesn't it? As it often does, you can be sure the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen? You can cling to the promises of Scripture when all of life seems to be just going crazy because the Word of God is true always and forever. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God's Word, brothers and sisters, is eternal. So I'm encouraging you. I'm belaboring the point. Invest in it. Know it. Grow in love for it. Study it. Memorize it. Hope in it. Don't say, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. God is not speaking to me. God feels distant. And you don't read the word. Read the word. Best of all, you can guarantee that if you hope and trust in God's word, you are never, you are never alone. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. To be a Christian means you are not alone. Amen? We are a body. We are a church. We are His bride. He is our bridegroom. He is our Lord and our Savior. And you don't do this alone. You can be sure Jesus will be our guide and our good shepherd who provides all that we need when we need direction. Ephesians 1 verses 22 through 23, which says this, He has put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. When we are weak, when we lack wisdom, you can be sure of this. Ephesians 3, verses 10 through 12. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. When you are struggling in sin, you can be sure of this. Ephesians 5, verses 26. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. When you are in need and you don't know how to ask, you can be sure of this promise. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly then all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I have just a few more. When you feel like the church is failing, when you see the culture and society which opposes God raging ever so loudly, Colossians 1, 18 says, He is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's so much more in Scripture that has to say about the promises he gives to the church, which guarantees God will persevere his church forever. But let me conclude with this promise in Revelation 19, 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So if you are a believer of these words, you have an invitation. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, these are the true words of God. And those who trust and hope in it will soon be one with God. So will you join the church in our pilgrimage toward that heavenly city? Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. May we, as God's church, make God's word primary. May we preach and sing and read and pray and see God's word faithfully. May we boldly proclaim the power of God's word. May we cling and hope in the promise of God's word to the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that in this church body, we hold to your word as the most wonderful, important gift for us to know you, for us to follow you, for us to proclaim you. Father, continue to guard and protect this church by your word. Continue to purify this local church as your bride. Continue to help us to love your word and to proclaim your word faithfully for your glory, for the advancement of your gospel, and for the building up of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.